Hey there, and welcome to First Person Interviews with Authors. This is a new monthly segment of Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I am your host, Anna Karras, and I am coming to you from beautiful Naples, Florida, where the workshop has been bringing the literary community together since 2014. First Person is a podcast where we worm our way inside an author's gray matter to see what makes them tick. Along the way, we'll discover useful nuggets on the creative process, writing techniques and rituals, plus get inside information on projects on which the author is currently working. This month, the inaugural podcast, I am so excited to have one of my favorite authors working today, Benjamin Percy. He is the author of five novels, the newest released just this month, The Ninth Medal. He also has written three books of short stories and a book of essays on writing. His stories and essays have appeared in many publications such as GQ and the New York Times. His work has been read and performed on NPR and at Symphony Space, and he has been published in such illustrious literary publications as The Paris Review, McSweeney's, Plowshares, Glimmer Train, and Tin House. Author James Lee Burke says, Benjamin Percy is one of the most gifted and versatile writers to appear in American publishing in years. His prose has the masculine power of Ernest Hemingway's, but also the sensibilities and compassion of Eudora Welty. His writing is like the meeting of Shakespeare and rock and roll. Benjamin Percy knows how to keep it in E major and what a ride is. Welcome, Benjamin Percy. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I've been following your career since I first met you at the Sanibel Island Writers Conference. I think it must have been 2013. I think that was the year you were there. That sounds about right. I can't wait to get back. You have a brand new book that is out, The Ninth Medal. came out June 1st. So tell me a little bit about what it's all about. So a, a little bit of backstory to contextualize the release of this book. You know, I, I wanted to upend the book industry in a way. So here is how a comic comes out. A comic comes out first as a floppy issue, right? That costs $2.99. When five of those release, they're then collected into a trade paperback that might sell for $10.99. Later on, it's collected probably with a few other trades as a deluxe hardcover with bonus material. And this makes sense to me because you create word of mouth through a cheap product and later on create a collector's item. And when you do this, it just it, it, it generates enthusiasm over time in a way that the book industry, I think it right now is, is sort of got things backwards. You know, you put out this hardcover book that costs sometimes $36. And if I, as somebody who is in the industry, am hesitant sometimes to pick one of these up, how do other people feel? I think that you need to put out paperbacks first and later on produce something that is more of a collector's item, a more exclusive, you know, hardcover edition. So I pitch these books, you know, from a marketing platform, not just their content, but the way in which they would be released. I wanted them to come out in quick succession as paperbacks and later on to be collected together in a deluxe hardcover omnibus edition that would contain art and short stories, ancillary short stories and such. And I also took into account attrition, right? If you think about how every sequel usually sells fewer copies than the original, this is not a trilogy. It's called the Comet Cycle. And all of these books, can be, they, they happen simultaneously. So you can read them in any order. And, and they sort of form concentric circles around themselves in the same way that a show like The Wire does. And another thing that informed this pitch is is that I've been writing for DC Comics and I've been writing for Marvel Comics for several years now, since 2014. And it's a hell of a lot of fun to write Wolverine. It's a hell of a lot of fun to write Batman. But in a way, I'm 
giving away ideas because these characters don't belong to me. The Marvel Universe does not belong to me. So I am, in effect, creating through this comet cycle my own DC or Marvel Universe, my own sandbox to play in that is infinitely generative. This is not three books. Three books are coming out. This could be six books, nine books. It could be 20 books. And so in a way, it is, you know, an, an age-old concept, right? There's a comet that comes streaking through the solar system, and it's a trigger event, right? We spin through the debris field, and it introduces new elements, new matter to our world, right? So uh, it's a new dawn of heroes and villains, the laws of physics and biology, and the geopolitical theater are upended. Everything changes in this moment. And there is essentially a new world that exists now within the old world. It's at once familiar and uncanny. So Minnesota is the starting point in the Ninth Metal. That's the first novel. And, 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 and the Ninth Metal is, it's about a number of things. I mean, it follows a few different characters. It follows this one guy, John Frontier, who's sort of a prodigal son returning to this northern Minnesota town where he grew up after everything has shifted, right? After it has become, it's gone from being the middle of nowhere to the center of everything. It's become a kind of contemporary deadwood because this metal known as Omnimetal, the ninth metal, the ninth noble metal, has fallen from the sky and impacted this region in particular. And Omnimetal has special qualities that on a quantum level allow it to absorb energy, absorb kinetic energy. And it allows, you know, scientists, investors, governments to imagine all the different possibilities as weaponry or as a way to change the energy industry. And so all of these people are rushing to northern Minnesota to buy up land. There are Saudis there. There are Chinese investors there. There are roughnecks traveling you know, from, from Texas there. Sudden swirl of, of people and interest in this region. And, and John Frontier is coming back to this town. He's been estranged from his family and he's going to find a sort of a, a new way into this community. And that, that new way in is very much connected to sort of making up for past sins. And I won't go too much into that because that's revealed through flashbacks. He's partnered by these other characters. You know, they're, they're all threading together. There's a synthesis of narrative that's occurring. And you have uh, Stacy Toll, who's a rookie cop who, who grew up in this community, a community she no longer recognizes. You have a character named Victoria, who is a scientist in a lab run by the Department of Defense that's doing experiments with Omnimetal. And yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of like, a, I don't know, you could call it, say it's like a sci-fi succession because it's very much about this legacy family and their grip on North Fall, Minnesota. You could call it a sci-fi succession. You could also call it kind of a sci-fi Deadwood. Yeah, you know, I definitely got a Deadwood vibe when I was reading this book. Um, I thought it was kind of like, almost like an X-Men Deadwood godfather. And I think it's really interesting that you chose rural Minnesota, northern Minnesota, as the setting for this. Now, I know you're a transplant from the Pacific Correct. Northwest, right? Yes. But you've been living in Minnesota for quite a few years now, if I'm not mistaken. Nine years. Nine years. Okay. You've definitely got your finger on the pulse of what Minnesota is now currently. So talk to me a little bit about how you take northern Minnesota, which doesn't have a whole lot of diversity, to be honest, and you insert it, you insert this boom town that has all sorts of different types of people coming in. What made you choose to do that? 
Well, a number of things informed my decision to set it there. One is I've been living in Minnesota for nine years. I, you know, finally feel as though I know this place well enough to write about it. Uh, I really, I really love Minnesota. Um, and it reminds me a lot of, of Oregon, minus the mountains, in the way that the urban and rural areas clash, in the way that it has all of these beautiful, wild regions. It has an inland sea with Lake Superior instead of the Pacific Ocean crashing against its shores. Northern Minnesota is my favorite corner of the state, and it's become one of my favorite corners of the country as well. And I like the idea of setting a story like this, a, f- a story that has that Deadwood feel, that has that frontier feel. I wanted to set it in a wild place. And this is the Boundary Waters Narrowhead region are some of the last truly wild places in this country. I also like the idea of the Boundary Waters are a liminal space. So if you're thinking about this as a story that transcends this world, that brings in alien matter. It makes sense that it would happen in this place that is sort of geographically unsure who it belongs to. And also, northern Minnesota used to be the center of everything. This is where all the iron ore came for the steel industry. It was the primary source of it all. And all of these mining towns have died off. There's still taconite produced in northern Minnesota, but it's just not nearly the level it was. So you have all of this economic devastation up there and families that are that are still hanging on but dreaming about how things used to be and there's a lot of controversy about possible copper mines opening up in the boundary waters area it's a constant discussion and all of that interest me all of that seemed like the perfect stage for drama I also like that you use multiple third-person limited points of view in your story where you take each chapter and tell it from a person's point of view. And you, like you said, you thread them all together. Is there a reason that you you do do this thing? Because I know you've done this in some other books that you've written too. It seems to be something that you're very fond of. Yeah. You know, I, I like getting into the brain of the character and the voice of the character, but I don't want them to hijack control of the narrative. I still want to have that authorial control over them and marionette them. So by using that close third or that limited third, you know, I'm able to sort of bend the narrative around their language, bend the narrative around their point of view while still piloting them. And there's something to be said about the suspense that you can generate by alternating points of view. You know, you see this in stories and and, and shows like Game of Thrones, where you drive towards some moment of emotional or physical peril, and then you cut away. And, and you don't cycle back to that character Maybe it's Tinian Lannister, you know, who just got knocked off his horse in the middle of a battle and an axe was coming towards his head. So then it's not for 50 pages that you come back to his story. And in the meantime, you're, you know, tearing out your hair and about him, but you're also worried about this other character and then this other character and then this other character that you've accounted in the meantime, this, this turnstile of, of suspense is sort of the way in which I organize my novels. Well, it certainly works. And that 
is an interesting way for you to segue into my next question was you have really cinematic qualities in this book. And I think in a, in a lot, most of your writing that you've done for fiction anyway, but the cinematic qualities in the ninth metal, I just want you to talk a little bit about genre fiction versus literary fiction and how you combine the two, because I know that you, you tell like, you tell a hell of a tale here and, and yet you do it in a very lyrical manner. And I really appreciate that. So talk to me. I know you've been thinking about this for a while. Yeah, I have. But at the same time, at this point, it's it's instinctive more than anything. But I mean, I grew up on genre fiction. I grew up on Stephen King and Agatha Christie novels. I grew up on Tom Clancy and Tony Hillerman. I grew up obsessed with Conan the Barbarian. Any book that had a dragon and a flaming sword on the cover, I would pull off the shelf at Walden Books and take home with me. But when I walked into my first creative writing classroom, I was told, you know, you, you can't write genre. And for the next few years, all I did was read and write literary fiction because classroom after classroom, I encountered that same maxim, no genre. So I fell in love with writers like Alice Monroe and, and James Baldwin and Leslie Silko. But I never fell out of love with genre. And I eventually came to a place where, you know, I recognized what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to sort of be neither fish nor fowl. I wanted to be Margaret Atwood. I wanted to be Kate Atkinson. I wanted to be Susanna Clark. I wanted to be Larry McMurtry. I wanted to be Dennis Lehane. I wanted to be Cormac McCarthy. Those writers who are both literary and genre. Writers who, if you look at McCarthy, like, where does he belong in a bookstore? Is All the Pretty Horses a Western and A Country for Old Men Crime and The Road Post-Apocalyptic and Child of God? Horror and such literature, it just doesn't matter. And I wanted to write stories that were artfully told and compulsively readable. And having worked now in comics, which emphasizes thrill ride uh, especially, and forces you to be principally focused on tight, efficient structures. Not that you can't be artful and literary with it, but it's just, it has to be, it has to grab its reader by the throat and not let go for those 20 pages to make sure that the geeks come back to the shop a month later. Having written in comics and having and having been equally obsessed my entire life with movies as much as novels, like all of these things just are hardwired into my brain or crosswired in my brain so that I don't, I almost don't think of them exclusively. You know, I don't think of them as their own categories. I just think of how to tell the best story, no matter the medium. I think that is really awesome. And I wish that more, I, I guess, MFA programs would get into that a little bit more. Um, did do you have an MFA? I don't know. I do. And, and, and I think that the tide has shifted a little bit. I, I travel or I did travel pre-COVID. I assume we'll start up again in the next year or so. But I used to pop around the country and visit campuses and festivals. And some programs actually have really embraced what you might call slipstream fiction. Some, some outright embrace genre. I know that the Nevada Reno program does. But you see a lot more work by, by writers like Karen Russell, Carmen Maria Machado, taught in programs and they're they're writing stories that feature werewolves they're writing stories that are like kevin brockmeyer will write a story about ghosts and and that was not allowed when i first started off i think that writers like karen and michael chabin and and continued rise of of margaret atwood and jonathan Lethem and george saunders and so on like they've, they've sort of all been kicking down fences 
but I still encounter the occasional campus where like I, I remember doing, I won't name the campus, but I went there to do a reading and one of the faculty members would not attend my reading because they thought that I was <laughs> oh you know, my, a sellout. Oh my goodness. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, too bad for them. And everybody's always asking me like, what, what made you change? And nothing changed. If you look at my early short stories, I'm writing them in the exact same way that I'm writing my stories right now. You know, I have the same commitment to lyricism, the same commitment to three-dimensional characters, the same commitment to subtext and metaphor, subterranean themes. It's just there's a happens to be, you know, a empire train in it or, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, zombie ninjas or whatever. I'm, I actually have not read about, written about those things, but I should. The subject matter might have shifted slightly, but the lens through which I approach fiction has not. Is there anything else you want to talk to me about the Ninth Metal? Anything that I haven't mentioned or that you think is really pertinent? I just, this is, you know, the first book to kick off the series. And it's a little weird for that to be happening in the time of COVID. Because a normal year, I would be on the road. I would be barking in bookstores and I'd be popping on to local NPR stations and such. And, And so I'm a little bit nervous about the launch. I, I hope it can be heard uh, above the noise. And and I'm grateful to be on uh, your podcast as a result. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you are my very first. So I'm going to publish you to the skies. So, right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about craft in general. And tell me a little bit about your road to publication and how you got started writing. What made you be- want to become a writer and how you found yourself as a published author? I didn't dream of being a writer when growing up. I was a voracious reader, and I think I was a voracious reader in part because I lived often in rural areas where there weren't really neighbors to hang out with, or we were off on road trips into the eastern Oregon landscape and camping, and you know there wasn't a TV screen to park myself in front of, so there would always be in my back pocket that mass market paperback with an embossed title. And I know that this sounds somewhat romanticized, but it's true. You know, almost every night my family would be sprawled out at a campsite or in, a, in the living room reading together. And, you know, my dad would be reading a sci-fi novel. My mom would be reading a Western novel. Uh, my sister, the black sheep of the family, would be reading a book about physics. And I <laughs> would be reading, you know, a horror fantasy book. And I wanted to be Indiana Jones. That's what I wanted to be. Same. <laughs> so I, I mean, I had a, a fedora in fifth grade. I had an adult size, size fedora. I had, uh, you know. I actually went and got a bachelor's degree in anthropology, but that's another yeah. story. Well, that's what I wanted to do. I, I, you know, even before I got into college, I had done a dig with the University of Oregon. They let me join them for a summer as a high school student excavating a Paiute village in the Christmas Valley region of Oregon. I did another summer mapping out rock art sites throughout Oregon. And and anyways, by the time I got into college, I sort of realized that it wasn't actually my thing, that I had more of that romanticized fantasy in my head, you know, and there there were no Nazis to do battle with, there were no rolling <laughs> boulders or beautiful women or lost arcs of the covenant or anything else. It was just me in a trowel and scraping through inch after inch of dirt. And the highlight of the day was finding a bone chip. Uh, and so around that time, I guess I had a kind of an existential crisis. 
I was doing poorly in my first year of college, academic probation, in part because I had no guidance. I didn't know what to take. There were no requirements where I went to school at Brown. You could just take whatever courses you wanted. It was really a bad idea for somebody like me. So I was like, I'll take digital security. You know, I took this course that required coding knowledge and I had no idea how to code. I failed that class. <laughs> I remember being on academic probation and visiting my counselor who also happened to be the professor who failed me in that digital security course. <laughs> And asking for advice, like, what am I supposed to do? And he said, you know, uh, well, not everybody has the guts to say this, but you know, college isn't for everybody. Oh, so okay. So he basically said, you should drop out. Nice. Uh, I remember standing up and just leaving his office and just feeling throat was jammed up with poison, felt terrible, felt like a failure. But he called out to me as I left the room and he said, you know, it's so weird that you are doing this poorly because uh, your application essay was the best I'd ever read. And so that stuck with me. You know, that summer I ended up working for Glacier National Park and I was a gardener there. And I was thinking about just dropping out of college or taking a year off. During that time, I started to journal. I started to flirt with poetry and wrote a few songs, scratched down images that I later use in stories. And I also met my you know, then girlfriend, now wife, and I was writing poems for her. And she said, you know, you should be a writer. <laughs> I, I was basically like, okay. <laughs> so when I, when I went back to school, I ended up switching my major. I ditched that counselor, got another one. Good idea. <laughs> and uh, in a way, that that counselor, who's a professor named Dr. James Head at Brown, he's involved with a lot of the Mars stuff, like super smart guy. But he's like, you know what? I was on academic probation my freshman year too. Uh, and they actually kicked me off campus and I just called it my first sabbatical. Uh, and <laughs> You know, he's like, do not drop out or I will kick your ass. And I ended up taking a bunch of courses from him. And in a way, the ninth medal kind of that class, because he taught this class about the geology of space. Yeah, I took all these creative writing courses. I ended up graduating with honors eventually, making up for my initial failure. I just, once I started writing, I couldn't stop. A man on fire. And I've, I've maintained that obsessive, obsessive work ethic ever since. I was submitting to magazines, you know, like the Atlantic Monthly as early as my junior year of college and getting rejection after rejection, but nonetheless, feeling like I was part of this conversation. It's larger conversation. You know, editors were writing me letters. They were telling me my work wasn't good enough, but still, they were writing me letters. And anyways, yeah, I guess it was, everything in my career has been incremental. Started off writing short stories, publishing short stories, and, and eventually the quality of the magazines or journals that I got into, the Paris Review. I found myself in Esquire. I started writing from there. After we're getting into Esquire, I started to write journalism for them as well. And then incrementally, other magazines started asking me to write for them. Time, GQ, Men's Journal, Outside. And, and, and from there, I've started publishing novels. And once I started publishing novels, I was able to break into comics. And once I broke into comics, I got a job writing these audio drama podcasts. Once I got those audio drama podcasts, which are essentially TV shows you stick in your ear, I got more and more work in TV and film. It's all been a matter of just hearing no a lot. Ignoring that, pressing onward, expanding sort of my aesthetic, my arsenal, however you want to refer to it, you know, moving into other mediums, learning new tricks. I guess you could say that I consider myself not a novelist or an essayist or a short story writer or a comics writer or a podcast writer or a screenwriter. I just consider myself a storyteller. Perfect. I think that encompasses everything. You did do some teaching, I believe. Were you at St. Olaf or Carleton? Yeah, I taught for about 10 years, I guess. 
My first gig was as a visiting professor at Marquette University. I went from there for a year to University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. I then got a nice, a great job at Iowa State University in their MFA program. And during that time, I was also visiting faculty at the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. And then, you know, I, I had a big hit. You know, I had a breakout novel called Red Moon come out. That was about when I met you, I think. Yeah, probably right. About 2015. Uh, and that opened the door to me stepping away from teaching. And I enjoy teaching, but but teaching was never the goal for me. You know, I wanted to be a writer. And, and so Red Moon allowed for me to transition out of it. And a lot of people told me, do not quit teaching. You're an idiot. Because I got, I got tenure and then I quit. And I did go up to St. Olaf and do just a two-year limited thing as I moved up here to sort of transition out of it. They denied somebody else tenure here. And so they had this window for two years. And so I came up and I was a writer in residence for two years and then said goodbye. And it was, I mean, from a business decision, it's the best choice I possibly could have made. You know, it, it allowed for me to just spend, you know, eight hours, sometimes 10 hours, sometimes if I'm on deadline, 14 hours to 16 hours, unfortunately, a day, uh, hammering the keyboard. Yeah, I've been busy and it's been, it doesn't feel like work. I mean, sometimes it's, sometimes it's exhausting, but it still feels like, uh, you're living the dream, man. I don't take it. I don't take it for granted every day in part because, you know, I work my ass off. I still work my ass off, but I really worked my ass off early on when I was, you know, teaching where I had, you know, four different preps and thousands of pages to grade and an infant son and student loan debt. And I was like making a pot of coffee at 11 PM and writing until, 3 a.m. and waking up at 9 a.m. to prep and doing that over and over and over again. Like, thankfully, the hard work just paid off, and I appreciate it every day when I'm able to do. Well, I mentioned teaching because you do have a collection of essays called Thrill Me, which talks about writing in general. And uh, there is one in there, there's one essay in there that you had when you came to the Sanibel Island Writers Conference, you talked about it was it was about talking about Rubens versus ninjas. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So one of the things that I often saw in student manuscripts was this. They would begin a story with you know, great enthusiasm and an attention to detail. Page one, maybe somebody's brushing their teeth and oh, the, the lyricism of those passages about you know, the mintiness of the toothpaste and the bristles, you know, scraping along the gums and such. It's exquisite. But then you get to like page two or three and the person has had their breakfast and dressed themselves and driven down the highway to work and blah, 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 blah. And then, and then the writer starts to get tired and maybe the character in the story is then fired from work, which is really the most important scene in the story. That's the moment when everything changes for them. That's the thing that kicks off all the conflict. They're fired. And that, that moment when they're fired, it, it actually, it was just a paragraph. Whereas the toothbrushing was three paragraphs earlier. And I, especially with my work in comics, I've actually asked students to panel their stories for me. Like, show me what this looks like if you were paneling it. You know, we've got, okay, we've got maybe three pages of art devoted to the bathroom scene that is irrelevant. <laughs> and then maybe three panels tucked into another page about the principal, this, this principal moment of importance, this, this crescendo moment that should have been the equivalent of in comics, a splash page. Think about it as visually telegraphing information. When you slow down and cram a story with details, you're spotlighting the moment and telling your reader to lean forward because this is important. 
But if you're always doing that, and students hear this, they hear, oh, I'm supposed to be detailed. But if you always do that, then nothing is important. If everything's important, nothing's important, right? So it's knowing where to train the camera. It's knowing how to panel. It's knowing how to announce to an audience the intent of a scene. And so let's say you have, it's a crime story, right? There's a detective who goes into the diner and greets his favorite waitress, Flo, as he gets some black coffee and a piece of pie and meets with this wild-eyed, messy-haired informant who pushes like a photograph across the table that the detective takes and helps him on his case. Like, great, I like this. But then there's this moment where, you know, he, in, in addition to the pie, maybe a Reuben sandwich gets delivered to him by Flo and he, he bites into that Reuben and, oh, so good. Slows down the pastrami and the sauerkraut and the rye bread and blah, 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 blah. We've got the equivalent of like the toothbrushing scene from earlier described. Whereas what you really want to hit is the moment when the detective, using that photograph and whatever other clues, he kicks down the door of the warehouse and goes cartwheeling through it with his glocks blazing and takes down the ninja's line and wait in order to save the kid who's duct taped to the chair in the corner or whatever. That, that moment should be like 10 pages if you're writing a novel uh, or 10 minutes if you're making a movie. And so what I'm trying to say is forget the Reuben and focus on the ninjas. Figure out where the ninjas are in your story. Now, I'm talking to you and I'm seeing you on camera, but of course our listeners can't see you, but you're in your office. Um, tell me about your personal writing space and how you have it set up and what is particular about it that means a lot to you. You know, I'm, I'm not too fussy with my surroundings. I just sort of, I'm not facing a window even, which I know some people are just completely horrified by, <laughs> but I, I, I just go into what my kids refer to as my dungeon every day. You know, it's a long commute down the stairs into the basement, cup of coffee steaming in my hand and, and I get hammered about from seven 30 to four o'clock every day is my standard that can change of course, depending on what I have to do. But I've got comic art, original comic art up on the walls in front of me. Adam Kubert and Josh Kassara and J.P. Leone and M.K. Perker. You know, stuff from Wolverine, stuff from Batman, art from Red Moon that was done. I've got a bunch of taxidermy around me. Everything from, <laughs> everything from a stuffed bat to uh, tarantulas and uh, lunamaws and centipedes and scorpions, praying mantis. I've got swords, wolverine claws, and... I guess I'm, I'm surrounded by nostalgic items and comforting items and items that reflect my warped brain. And, and then over to my left here is a closet and the previous owner of this house was a hobby photographer and that was his dark room. And so in the dark room, appropriately, I hang up my ideas. Okay. Tell me a little bit about that because I know you've said before that you have like a, a big space where you tack up Stripped. things on the wall. Yeah, and I, uh, That's it. And I've got... I've got articles tacked up on the walls and they're clustered according to different things. You know, I've got like a cluster right now going for CRISPR and genomic sequencing. I've got something up there. I've got a cluster of articles on AI and terraforming. And, and I've got, you know, I've also got stuff like just ideas, just basic ideas listed. I've got other pieces of paper that are characters I'd like to write. I don't know where they'll end up, just character names and, and ideas for personalities. I've got uh, set uh, a piece of paper on set pieces. So just like big action sequences that I've already imagined. I don't know where they'll fit. 
So instead of having a writer's notebook, you basically have a closet. I have a closet. I have a dark room. And I also have these scrolls. These scrolls where I map out the novels and the screenplays that I'm going to write. Oh, yeah. That's like a really big piece of paper. So you can... Yeah. I mean, I've got one right here I haven't hung up yet. And oh, yeah. Typically, what I do is, you know, I think about a book for a year or more before I write it, and it starts off as, you know, a scroll. And on the left side, I have character bios. And once I figure out who they are, I know what they want. And once I figure out what they want, I can put obstacles in the way of that desire, the first stirrings of plot. So well, on the left side are the characters, and then each character has a plot line. And this is all hazily written, you know. I, I know I want the character to end up here. I know they want the character to then have this happen to them. And this, I don't have every single thing figured out, but I have their arc figured out. And then if I'm looking at this thing, and it's some, I mean, I don't know what kind of brain you have, but I can't keep it all in my head if I'm writing a novel. So it's important for me to have a just this this visual reminder and and a way for me to just connect dots. That's an important part of my process. And, you think of it as a blueprint, but the blueprint is written in pencil. Things can change, yes. And half the fun of getting from point A to point B is you never know what's going to happen. One way I've talked about it before is a constellation where I know the brightest stars. If you look at a constellation in the sky, it's it's a maybe a scorpion, maybe somebody firing an arrow. You know, it's a it's a figure, it's an image, uh, and it has a story and a mythology around it. But there's all that dark space between the stars that you have to fill. That's sort of how I think of my outlines, where I have the bright stars in mind, and those dark spaces are where I improvise. Can you tell me a little bit about, I think in your book, Thrill Me, you talk about using the well of creativity and the the ideas that you you say don't save things, throw everything in there. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I, I learned this lesson early on. I was rationing out ideas. I remember and back then I had a cork board next to my desk instead of a dark room. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had all these things on my cork board. And I remember I would be like, okay, these three things will be in this story. These three things will be in that next story and such. And, and then I, I just got to a place where I felt like I was rutted. I felt like I was not taking that next leap. And I, I get this feeling every now and then. I'm like, I got to take things to the next level. And so what I, what I did in that moment is I, I put in everything that I had. I just unloaded it all into one story. It ended up being 40 pages. Eventually it was edited down to 18, but that was a breakout short story. That was refresh, refresh. And so that story kicked things off in a big way. And I had just gone no holds barred. And for about a week, I was like, oh, I guess that's it. I got nothing else. But then the well filled back up. You can think of it as a well, or you can think of it as, you know, there's always more timber coming down the trail. If you're creative, there's always more coming. So you, you've you written, like you said, you've been writing a lot for comics lately. You do Wolverine and Batman, and actually you're spamming the DC Marvel um, well, no, I, I kicked off my career with Batman. That was an auspicious debut, I realized. And the backstory on that is I had submitted over 40 pitches to DC and been rejected prior to that. And my break-in to Batman. So from 2009 to 2014, I had been submitting and submitting and submitting and submitting comics ideas and getting shot down. But this, this editor, I'd met with him in New York when I was on book tour once. Like he knew how passionate I was about comics. I grew up on comics. That's my formative reading experience. I can't even remember the first novel I read, but I can remember the first comic I read. And my, the Batman story that he accepted was a failed screenplay. I had sent a screenplay all around Hollywood. Everybody 
who said no. But I was able to recognize something in the ruins in the same way that I recognized something in the ruins of that moment with my college counselor. I recognized a turn, a pivot. And so I, took, I put Batman into the story. I reframed it. And that was my kicked off my comics career. You know, and I got Green Arrow from there. I got Teen Titans from there, Nightwing. And then I left DC and went to Marvel. And I've been writing Wolverine and X-Force ever since. So what's the difference between, I mean, what kind of frame of mind do you have to be in to write comics as opposed to writing fiction? What's the difference? You know, comics are 20 pages, five to seven scenes. They're not 18 pages. They're not 23 pages. They're 20 pages. And there are typically five to seven scenes. There's an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, and a D plot. When, you know, I think about comics, I think about what Terrence Hayes, the poet, said about the difference between free verse poetry and form poetry. Form poetry like a sonnet or a villanelle. And he says, you know, it's cool if you can break dance, but it's badass if you can break dance in a straight jacket. And so for me, comics, it's like writing a villanelle or a sonnet. It's like breakdancing in a straitjacket. Uh, in the way, the constraints can be inspiring. And I think that they have made me a more efficient and better fiction writer, prose writer. You know, and they've also cl clarified a lot of my thinking, not just structural thinking, architectural thinking, but also my thinking about characterization. You know, every comics character has a key insight or core wound, right? Like Bruce Wayne. His core wound is his parents were killed in Crime Alley after they left the theater. All familiar with that scene. He is the Batman because of that moment, right? Spider-Man is Spider-Man because Uncle Ben was killed by a burglar. Killmonger is Killmonger because his father was killed and is resentful of T'Challa, Black Panther, because of their father's connection. There's a lot of blame there. And all of these characters have this key insight, this core wound. And I know that people are multidimensional and have conflicting desires. But when story comes to storytelling, that singularity, that focusing agent can be so helpful in driving your narrative. And also when it comes to giving rise to your villains, I know that's a corny term, but if you think about comics as just oftentimes a more pronounced, sometimes hyperbolic or bombastic version of what you might see in other storytelling mediums, right? Your villain is whatever, your antagonist elsewhere. But that villain should be either a dark mirror or an opposite of your character and connected to their key insider core wound. So if you just think about, you know, Batman's villains, they're the most interesting, the rogues gallery of Batman. That these different, these different villains are different manifestations of what's inside of him. You know, the Joker is his opposite. So the law and order that he became obsessed with from the very beginning, controlling everything, bringing justice to Gotham City, all of that stems from that moment of chaos and random attack that he suffered in that alley. The Joker is an opposite to him. But somebody like Bane is more of a dark mirror to him, or Poison Ivy is more of a dark mirror to him. Poison Ivy is also avenging her parents and trying to bring kind of law and order to the world. She's focused on, on environmental justice, though. If it's a story about Dr. Freeze, it's actually a story about the emotional coldness inside of Bruce. If it's a story about Scarecrow, it should be a story about the fear that he has learned to control and weaponize. It's a story about Two-Face. It should be a story ultimately about, is Bruce Wayne the mask and Batman the real man? Or is Bruce Wayne the real man and Batman the mask? Comprehending the way that all these great villains are externalizations of internal conflict is really helpful when it comes to figuring out how you're gonna even work on that 10-page short story you might publish in the Sawani Review. So it's, it's very much a distillation, I would think, right? Yeah. Turns up the volume of everything, so it becomes more obvious. Well, thank you for that. I asked you to think of a favorite short story 
that has meant something to you or really impacted your writing in some sort of way? Can you tell me what it is that you chose and why it means that much to you? Well, this connects to a writing exercise that I would give my students. So I'm just going to point out this short story because it helped me. And I'm not saying this is the short story you should study. I'm just saying for me, it was a, tr- it was a triggering event. And so when I was in grad school, I was, I was actually struggling with what I'm best at now, which is structure. And what I did was I started to reread stories that I admired. And so what I would do is, and I started with Flannery O'Connor's Everything That Rises Must Converge. She was really good at structure, I felt. There was always like a math formula to her stories. She usually have kind of like an Old Testament justice to them, where the character by the end is punished for their sins that are introduced in the first paragraph. So what I did was I reread that story, and then I reread it, 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 so that I was emotionally detached from it. And so that I could recognize everything it was technically doing. You know, when you read a story and you're blown away by it, it's usually as much in your heart as it is, you know, any sort of artistic appreciation. If you really want to understand something, you got to look under the hood. And that comes from rereading. So I reread that story over and over and over again. And then I blueprinted it the sixth time I read it. And I was able to go through paragraph by paragraph. Say, okay, character A introduced via dialogue as jealous and spiteful which is his principal flaw as a character that will play out later on. Theme introduced in paragraph two via description of setting and so on. Just going through beat by beat, paragraph by paragraph and figuring out what had been done. And then as an experiment, I used that skeleton to write a short story of my own. And I did that with like three or four different stories and I just, it clicked. Like I just got it. And so I would later on assign this same thing to my students and make them write an essay additionally that explained every single move they made and why and how it was drawn from the original text. I've later on did this with novels and, and in my novel writing course that I once taught, made all the students do the same, rereading for the wilding. So I'd written four failed novels and I was like, I get this. Why am I, I'm obviously doing a lot of things incorrectly here. I mean, most novelists have a bunch of failed books in the drawer, but I was like, I, I have to both teach a novel writing class and I feel like a fraud doing so. And I just need to figure this shit out. (laughs) So I ended up rereading and rereading and rereading a few different books. One was Larry Watson's Montana 1984, which just feels like clockwork precision. Rereading and rereading and rereading Kent Harriff's Plain Song, Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Just rereading these books that I felt were very precisely arranged. And uh, I ended up mapping them all out, rereading them each about three times. And seeing what made them successful and the mechanics of what made them successful. Exactly. Okay. Which clarified everything when I was writing The Wilding, my first published book, published novel rather. And now for our final act, Benjamin Percy will read from his book, The Ninth Medal. Take it away, Benjamin. At some point, you read a bedtime story to your child for the last time. At some point, you run through a sprinkler or hit a home run or stand on your head for the last time. At some point, you go from hating to tolerating to loving to requiring coffee. At some point, you go from grieving a lost parent to remembering him or her fondly. Most transitions are gentle and unrecognized and individual. This one was violent and collective. Everyone could point to the same date on the calendar and say, then, that was when everything changed. 
In northern Minnesota, the night birds went silent. Worms and salamanders twisted out of the dirt. Cats yowled in yards and dogs whimpered under beds. Some people suffered from sudden migraines and others noticed their fillings tanging their mouths with the taste of metal and others shook their cell phones and said, hello, can you hear me? And then the sky fell. The meteors, some the size of golf balls, hailed down one after the other a constant fusillade. Some were as big as zeppelins and knuckled up huge mounds of earth spiked with woods. Trees splintered and caught fire as though struck by cannonballs. Silos opened up and spilled their grain in a hissing rush. Lakes splashed and chimneyed with steam. Houses vanished. A woman named Jessica Peterson was driving a semi north along Highway 1, hauling a tank full of milk. She leaned over the steering wheel, craning her neck to take in the sky. The radio fuzzed in and out country music, Bible-thumping preachers, news reports, a chaotic babble. She spun the dial until it settled on classic rock. The station was running a theme show, a comet countdown. David Bowie's star man gave way to Zeppelin's stairway to heaven. A hula girl was anchored to the dash. The paint on her belly was worn away because Jessica liked to rub it for luck. And she rubbed it now, but it was too late for luck. She didn't see the meteor itself, only the crown of the fire-edged asphalt rising before her. A crater had opened in the road and she couldn't break fast enough. The semi chunked over the lip of rubble and descended into the sudden pit. The grill struck the far side of it and the semi accordioned with a doom and shriek of rent metal. The tires melted and the milk glugged out of the fissured tank and swarmed a scalding pond that boiled and steamed. A man named Paul Weitz was washing dishes after dinner while his daughters watched television in the living room. They kept complaining about the quality of the picture and he kept telling them, if it's so horrible, shut it off and get your butts to bed. He added more soap to suds up the water and scraped some dried yolk off a plate with his fingernail and then noticed that the half and quarter full glasses on the counter beside him were trembling. Water shivered inside them. Their rims chimed against each other. He looked out the window in time to see the shining paths of a dozen or more meteors. He charged into the living room and scooped up his daughters with his soap splattered hands just as the house began to shake. Holes opened in the ceiling and the floor. Cinders splintered the air. He dodged between columns of short-lived light. And when he glanced up, he could see rough patches of the sky. His daughters were screaming when he laid them in the bathtub and covered their body with his and said, it's going to be okay. Daddy will keep you safe. Ken Pierce was out on Miner's Lake in his V-Sport cruiser. He had a six-pack of hams on ice in the cooler and a pole baited with a leech in the water. Fish probably wouldn't be biting this time of night, but what the hell, here he was waiting on the meteor shower to get going, so he might as well try his luck. When the sky began to streak and strobe, so did the reflective surface of the water, so he felt he was floating inside a globe of shaken stars. The air trembled with the thunder of sonic booms and cratered moorings, so Ken didn't hear the water splashing and plopping all around him as fish leaped, crazed by what was happening. He spilled his beer when a walleye flopped onto his lap. One sunfish and then another smacked the deck. A trout 
arched over the railing and rattled directly into the ice-filled cooler. He didn't need his pole after all. And on a 400-acre lot 30 miles outside of North Fall, a quick succession of impacts pounded the earth. Not much remained of the Gunderson's maple forest, but scorched stumps and burning leaves. The displaced dirt had nudged the foundation of the house up on one side, so it sat crookedly, but it was otherwise spared. Its windows had shattered. Some of the vinyl siding had melted. Bricks still fell from the chimney. Water gurgled from a broken pipe. One meteor hit close to the house and produced a splash of molten metal like a muddy wave of lava. And the little boy named Hawken was slammed by the final burning reach of it. He barely had time to throw up his arm before it struck him. His scream was silenced before it ever left his mouth. He went rolling across the lawn, cowled in red-hot metal. The lawn scorched and smoke beneath him. His clothes and hair were incinerated. He lay there for several minutes, his body tremoring, and the metal cooled to a silver sheen that slowly shrank to patches like puddles drying in the sun before being absorbed into his skin entirely. He went still. And then he rose with a gasp, deep and hungry. He looked around at a landscape that was unrecognizable, all smoke and fire, and what looked like some hellish lake, a massive silver reach veined through with red. He ran then into the night. He had forgotten about the stranger with the shotgun. He had forgotten about his parents. He had forgotten his name. For the moment, he was nothing but fried nerve endings, and he had no plan except to escape the pain that seemed centered in this place. He would later be discovered wandering naked down the middle of the highway with a blank look on his face. When asked what happened, he could only say, the sky fell on me. Thank you very much, Benjamin Percy, for your reading of the Ninth Medal. So the Ninth Medal is uh, released June 1st, and it is available wherever you buy books, but I want to give a special shout out to your favorite indie bookstore, which is content books here in Northfield, Minnesota. And if you order from their website, I will mail you a signed copy. Awesome. So I have mine on order already. Can't wait to get it. Yeah, I'll put the uh, the link in the show notes and a link to your website so people can learn out more about you. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me. Hey, and thank you. I, I wish you nothing but great success with the ninth medal. And I can't wait for the next book in the cycle to come out yeah it won't be too long six months later really yeah good to know all right well we'll be looking for that okay so thank you very much thank you that will wrap up this month's episode of first person interviews with authors next time we pop up in your feed you'll be listening to your regular every other week segment where hosts christine gill and jc bronstead deconstruct a short story looking for the elements that make it successful i'll be back next month with another author interview if you like our podcast please consider leaving us a rating and review on apple podcasts it will help other writers and literary types find us thanks for listening and keep on writing